Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Professor Sean Humphrey, also known as the Blue Collar Professor. And we talk about Laceba microfinance, tribal teaching and creating a culture of commitment in the classroom. Sean is such a unique and inspirational person and I can understand why Christine Exley from episode 54 regarded Sean as a truly inspirational person. It's a fantastic story. Why not check out the show notes and the links mentioned by Sean in this episode at economicrockstar.com forward slash Sean Humphrey. I grew up poor in Ohio um, back in the 70s when our uh, local industries were opened up to global competition. Um, the Japanese machine tool companies came in and just wiped us out. My pedagogy, which I call tribal teaching, is a process by which I work to I give a significant amount of autonomy to my students, and they have extreme accountability, and I sort of create this sort of radical space where they have this freedom to choose and design their own work. The tool of microfinance creates this mutuality of need in the sense that they need us for access to continued lending. We need them to repay in order to survive. And that creates a sense of dignity and respect between us. I am fighting like an entire culture that has conditioned us to believe in certain things. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Sean Humphrey join me today. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Frank, for having me. Sean Humphrey is currently an Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Mary Washington. He is the founder of the $2 Challenge, the Seabook Microfinance, the Month of Microfinance, and the Poverty Action Conference. Sean is also on the Board of Directors of Students Helping Honduras, a former Clinton Global Initiative University mentor, an Opportunity Collaboration alum, and a 2014 Feast on Good Speaker. Sean is from North Bend, Ohio, earned his BA in Economics for Earlham College, his MA in Economics at Virginia Commonwealth University, and after having read Douglas North's Institutions, Institutional Change, and Economic Performance, headed to Washington University in St. Louis, where he earned his PhD in Economics. Sean, you describe yourself as a tribal teacher, a diligent do-gooder and a global grassroots mobilizer and you're an economics professor can you explain where all that ties in or what what's going on in your life right now well i guess i just sort of stumbled into this space i've actually been called a social entrepreneur which um i remember the very first time i was called that on a, I was on a phone call with some people from Ashoka, which is this huge nonprofit around the world that sort of fosters social entrepreneurship. And they're like, hey, you're a social entrepreneur. I'm like, oh, okay, what's that? So I did a little research and, you know, I, I don't really take that title so much, but, um, yeah, I guess there is room there. But I, um, yeah, I just sort of fell into the space in a trip in Honduras. I sort of realized one night I was sitting there that my life's impact would be quite limited if I continued on my current professional path. And so I decided that I would make some changes in my pedagogy and also make some changes in my um, research. Well, I would actually just stop my traditional research and begin developing movements. And I have end up, I end up having a knack for developing, you know, movements, whether national or international on a shoestring budget. I had no idea I had that skill set and just sort of evolved from there. 
And when you say that skill set, are you talking about being a, a leader or a creator? Because you have some students that tend to join you as well during their semester. And obviously, we talked about Christine Exley prior to this interview, and she was one of those people who I had interviewed in one of the episodes that joined you on the SEBA. Yeah, so it's definitely a, a co-creation. So I work with my students on all the projects. Um, a lot of the projects we just sort of think of on our own, and we just sort of organize a team. So it's, where, it's, it's a mix where my pedagogy, which I call tribal teaching, is a process by which I work to – I give a significant amount of autonomy to my students, and they have extreme accountability, and I sort of create this sort of radical space where they have this freedom – to choose and design their own work. Um, and in that space, we create different initiatives and we think about different ways that we could address social problems from a different perspective. And then we run from there. And I guess in some ways, I consider myself a thought leader in the sense that I will actually build out platforms to push out some ideas that we generate um, to sort of change the conversation. So for an example would be back in 2009, the microfinance industry was rocked by a number of suicides in India. I mean, there was a big debate in the microfinance community about whether or not are we an industry or are we a movement. If we're an industry, then, of course, we should, we should continue to pursue these sort of like really exorbitant interest rates and put a lot of pressure on clients to repay. Or if we are a movement, then we should, all, we should be about social justice, about restructuring systems of oppression. And so my students and I, we run our own microfans institution in Honduras called Laceba, where we take a very distinct approach to microfans, which is different than anything else out there. And we wanted to create a platform by which we could share our vision of microfans with the rest of the world. So we designed the month of microfans about five years ago. This April, we have it every April. We just decided April will be the month of microfans where internationally microfans institutions, thought leaders, practitioners, and researchers would come together and sort of discuss this idea about where, what are we for? Are we for clients or are we for ourselves? And five years ago, it was just like us and about 12 other institutions. Today, it's 100 plus um, institutions around the world. Mohammed Yunus, you know, gave us a private meeting. Um, the, the governor of Colorado declared April the month of microfinance officially. So it's now just a month on the calendar. And that just came out of the classroom with me and my students wanting to share our ideas. And so, yeah, I just sort of found out that I was actually pretty good at doing those sort of things. And so it sort of snowballed from there. Wow. This is something that is obviously, you can already say, extracurricular from your behalf and your students because it's something that I'm sure, I don't know, do they get graded on this or any credits? No, <laughs> it's all volunteer. It was all volunteer work. And on top of that, you know, you think we have, um, we did all that on $75 budget. Wow. So you buy the domain name. Yeah. You know, and you may, we buy a little bit of marketing on Facebook, on social media, but beyond that, it's just this behind the scenes, just sort of grunt work, grinding it out, reaching out to people, connecting them, bringing them together. And yeah, over time, we sort of demonstrate that you can make a global impact on not a lot of money if you get creative enough to sort of embrace your constraints and say, hey, let's find a way to get around this one and do it creatively. Your type of personality is very few and far between in terms of you're quite a rare person. I've also had another, as you might have put it, a social entrepreneur on the show, Helena Norberg-Hodge, who has, for the last 30 years, trying to wipe out poverty in Ladakh. And she's looking at the concept of the economic of happiness and how globalization has impacted and robbed these people of local, local values and localization. 
and you're bringing this finance to these people in Honduras. Like, what is your motivation behind all of this, other than, or is it more to do with your personality or your love to help? Oh, I think, um, yeah, I think there's two moments. One is that I grew up poor in Ohio um, back in the 70s when our uh, local industries were opened up to global competition. Um, the Japanese machine tool companies came in and just wiped us out. And we were, no one was ready for that kind of competition outside, on the outskirts of Cincinnati, Ohio. And so a lot of us, um, a lot of my family members, they lost their jobs. We went into poverty, you know, to make ends meet. My mom would scrub the Burger King fryer at 3 a.m. in the morning. And so it was sort of like a process by which how do households move their way out of such a dire economic situation. And I remember a couple of moments when I was younger that, you know, there's plenty of times when we didn't have money to put food on the table my parents did so um, my sister and i would walk up to the local grocery store go inside grab some milk and some bread take it up to the counter and the woman behind the counter would give us a look she went on for a little bit of her receipt paper write our family name on it write how much we owe them and tape it to the back of the wall behind her because uh, we didn't have the mind to, to actually pay for the groceries but their, pre- their way of making sure we pay back was through this sort of public system of making sure everyone in the community, which is a small community, knew that my family was unable to pay their bills. And I remember those times when my family and I would walk back into that grocery store to actually pay those bills and watching how my parents would change in terms of their tone and their body language. It was very deferential. And I just sort of remember those moments. And, you know, I may have been misunderstanding things and I may not have known sort of the rituals of rank at that time when I was really young, but it it left a lasting impression upon me in terms of like, there's a better way to sort of assist people in the process of moving out of poverty. And so that stuck with me. And then there's other part of me that is straight up just social justice in which in case, you know, that's for me, I was bullied from the time I was young all the way through eighth grade. And I, <laughs> and I laugh about it just because, you know, it's one of the things, if you're bullied, you never go to the bathroom during school. <laughs> and so I never did. But one time, you know, every once in a while, you just can't, you have to go. So I remember, you know, one time that I actually had to go. And I had an entire system in place, which is I peek my head out the door. I look up and down the hallways, make sure it's all clear, take a few steps out, take another look. And then I run down to the bathroom, open the door slowly, take another look, make sure it's empty. And then, you know, go inside and do what I have to do. But this time, you know, you know, a little bit too much pressure. I have to go to the bathroom and I, I skip a step and I end up in the bathroom with three of my boys. Um, and, um, yeah, and so I was sitting there, and one of them pulled out a bag of, um, you know, pills and illegal drugs and was trying to force me to carry it around all day in school. And right before I was reaching over to take it from because I was scared to death, you know, cornered behind the urinal, one of my friends named Ted Shaw came in. <laughs> it was like Superman had just walked in. And Ted, and Ted, was, a, and Ted was a, you know, a big boy for his size, and he just came in and shoved my boys back and he's like, Sean, get out of here. And I just took off running. And I just remember with every step I took, I was like, that's what I need to do someday when I'm in a position of power. How can I use that power to make things better? And so both those things have are sort of part of my core and they sort of motivate me in everything I do. Wow. I'm speechless. I wasn't expecting that at all. I didn't realize, especially the, like, when your parents had to pay for those bills in the shopping market, in the supermarket, 
was there kind of like was this announcing to the public in a shameful way by posting those on the wall for everyone to see that led you to what you explained in terms of not forgetting the social hierarchy that had evolved up back then yeah I, you know and so you know, I mean, you know it was Tom's grocery store and Tom he was a good guy you know he sponsored our local baseball team and I'm sure he probably had a lot of people who were asking for you know a handout during that time and I can imagine how how he probably struggled with trying to figure out how do I get people to repay and I, I just remember that there's a better way to do that and I think in that sort of moment has infused the work that my students and I do in Honduras with our microfinance and so the way that we structure our our microfinance operations in Honduras we have no fees, we have no penalties, we have no collateral, we have no group lending, we have low interest rates, and we have individual loans. And what we do is we try to create the best conditions under which our clients can be successful. And also in the, pro- in the sense that if they cannot repay, which happens quite a bit because the economic lives of the poor are just bombarded with crises health crises, education crises, weather crises, whatever it is. And so their ability to just sort of pay on time all the time, it's very, it's hampered. What we do is uh, we always talk about let's replace collateral with a relationship. And so we spend most of our time developing strong relationships with our clients so that in the end, they're not just going to take our money and run because we have a relationship now. And so we spend a lot of our time doing that. So I feel like that moment sort of like when I was a child has infused sort of like the way in which we do things today. Because in, in the thing with group lending and microfinance, group lending is simply peer pressure. It's a public process by which a small set of individuals can apply pressure to one individual in the group who is unable and or unwilling at that moment to pay off her loan. And so I know that, and this is where microfinance has a problem because it sort of publicizes and advertises group lending as sort of like a bunch of women in these beautiful saris sitting in a circle making loan payments and how this is all about female empowerment, when in fact it's a system of pressure as well. It may be female empowerment, but there's also a significant amount of pressure in that setting. And it's just something that we were just uncomfortable with. This idea of public shaming is, we're not in that business. And I can take, I guess I can trace that back to that moment in that little grocery store in North Bend, Ohio. So, yeah. Do Have you heard any successful stories from these people who have got the finance from you? In terms yeah. of, even the smallest success could be being able to feed their family, or is it more to do with entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think that's what that's another where place where we differ quite a bit is that we um, what we found is that probably ninety percent of our clients do not use their loan for entrepreneurial activities. Most of them use it for consumption smoothing. We have a few clients who are very successful. Like one of our clients runs a bakery with her husband. It's widely successful. They just bought their second uh, industrial-sized oven. I mean, they're just knocking it out, and that's the traditional microfinance success story. But there's another story which I even I love even more is that one of our clients who's 65 and has a fourth grade education was able to buy her first mattress. And for me, <laughs> that's success and that's enough for me to keep going. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we try to talk about with our work in Honduras is that, and I feel like why we're so unique in this space of microfinance is that since we, def- we focus so much on the relationship, like one of the things we did is that we used to have these group meetings every two weeks all of our clients to sort of fill them in, um, get feedback, and they just weren't working very well. So one of our, our program director, who was a former student of mine, Santiago Suero, he said, "What's well, I want to switch it up to coffee and donuts. And so we'll have coffee, we'll have donuts, we'll bring games, and we'll just gather. 
And so we gather in a place and if people want to talk, they talk. And it ends up happening, we get more stories out of coffee and donuts than we do out of group meetings. Mm-hmm. And I think where that comes, what I'm, what I'm leading up to is this point that I feel like our clients feel comfortable telling us the truth about how they use their money with us uh, because they know that we value the relationship and we're not going to cut off services at any moment because we feel like they're not pursuing the traditional microfinance narrative, which is give a woman a small loan, she becomes an entrepreneur and pulls her family out of poverty. That doesn't happen very often, I don't think. And that's okay. And I think consumption smoothing is undervalued in this microfinance space. I think, I mean, there's reasons why people are, are concerned about consumption smoothing because like, well, how do, if you, if you receive a loan and I don't, if you don't invest in becoming more productive, like get a sewing machine or get a, you know, industrial size oven and therefore heighten your returns, how do you pay off the loan? With legitimate concern. But there's something really powerful about being able to put food on the table every night for your family and providing that sense of just security for young kids that every day, mom and dad or mom or just dad or just aunt or my own, just my grandma will be able to put food on the table every night. And I think that's what we're shooting for. And it's, it's crazy that there's poverty still exists out there because as you mentioned in one of your blog posts, we're supposed to be the generation that's supposed to end this poverty. That's not happening. It's not. I don't think it'll ever happen. Even in developed economies like Ireland and the United States, we do hear stories where people can't even put food on the table. And if we can't do it in our own country, how are we supposed to expect to do it in countries like Honduras? So governments have a responsibility. Yeah, and this, yeah, and the idea of us, of, of, of even just us as outsiders ending another community's poverty, that's, it, it's just, well, I think it's a ridiculous notion, I think. For one reason, the question that it's really simple that I ask myself and ask my students, have any of us had to solve our own poverty before? No. So how do we know how to solve it? We haven't solved our own poverty. And on top of that, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, development, the ending of poverty, it's an internal, long-term, incremental political process that's decades in the making. Now, if you would have interviewed me about seven years ago, I would have told you, hell yeah, we can end poverty. Because I was in my do-gooder adolescence. I was completely naive. And, even, I mean, it's so funny. Even seven years ago, I mean, I was trained by a Nobel Prize winning economist who does amazing work in the development space. But I was hijacked by what I call the do-gooder industrial complex, which is this culture that I'm immersed in in my country. And you probably are in Ireland as well, is that as people from the outside who enjoy a certain level of material wealth, we believe that we can go anywhere and end another person's poverty. And that completely hijacked my training of like by Douglas North. And I just can't believe sometimes look like how did that hijack my rational intellectual self? But it did not anymore though. But there's a naivety. Even I said it there, governments have a responsibility and that's almost naive for me to say this because if people rely on government, it'll never get done. And we need people like you and your students to create these institutions or create these organizations that help one other person. If it happens to help one person in Honduras, you're removing that person from poverty and smoothing their consumption or allowing them to smooth their consumption rather than having them hit lows and then peak again at certain times. 
Yeah, I think um, I want to be careful in terms of like we don't want to like I always tell my students that we're not going to end poverty, that we may make a scratch in this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we talk about it with, you know, our work in Honduras with microfinance is that we use microfinance as a tool because um, in many ways, what we like about it, it creates a healthy distance between ourselves and our clients. It creates this opportunity to have a dignified relationship because the tool of microfinance creates this mutuality of need in the sense that they need us for access to continue lending. We need them to repay in order to survive. And that creates a sense of dignity and respect between us. And at the same time, it's like, I don't, so we don't want to push it too far. Like we could, we could sort of spin a theory of change leading from consumption, consumption smoothing to the end of poverty in Honduras. But that's a really long, tenuous uh, chain of reasoning. And so in that sense, one of the things I work really hard on with my students is sort of being very realistic in our understanding about what it is that we are doing and what we can do. In fact, the bottom line is that the end of poverty in Honduras, the heavy lifting is going to have to be done, will be, and it is being done by the communities we work in. And all we can do is be what I call psychics in this process. Um, we stand in solidarity, but beyond that, you know, this poverty in Honduras is a, it's a culturally specific, contest specific, historically anchored process um, that we do not know much about. And in fact, from the United States perspective, we've had a hand in this and we have to be aware of that as well. And so what I try to tell my students is that we're, we're distant geographically, we're distant culturally, we're engaged for a short duration of time. So let's keep these expectations sort of low and let's make sure that we don't come in with all the hubris uh, that we know what to do, how to do it, when to do it. When in fact, we need to come in with, some, with a lot of humility and a nice dose of doubt about <laughs> what it is that we're doing. Yeah. And mix it all up and there you have you have your machine <laughs> of microfinance group. And you know, you mentioned earlier on that you don't know your own poverty or we don't know our own poverty, but you have also a website that you found called the two dollar challenge. And you're encouraging people to live on your two dollars or your one dollar. And this is a an annual event that happens in October, is that correct? It happens every uh, April, 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 the first week of April. Yeah. And um, so the $2 challenge is it started out as a, an experiential learning tool for my students. And so I wanted to, I was teaching economic development and I wanted to get to give them some more insight into the economic lives of the poor. So I designed the challenge back in 2006. So my students and I live on $2 a day. We build makeshift shelters on campus. I reside in the shelters with them, live on trails a day with them, four or five days, four nights. And over time, and we raised a lot of money doing that as well and awareness. And we use that money to sort of fund our microfinance work in Honduras. Um, but over time, what has happened is as we've thought we've sort of gotten deeper and deeper into the thought processes of the um, experiential learning part of it. We learned about you know, how much we really don't know. And this exercise is problematic because I struggle with it in terms of, I, there's this, there's this tension here between inquiry, which is I want to give my students insights and I want to gain insights into the economic lives of the poor. But at the same time, we are playing poverty. So it borderlines on insulting those that we are actually trying to understand. And so it's a very delicate balance between these two. How do you do this? And so we spend a significant amount of time 
you know, every night at the shelters, having conversation after conversation, digging deeper into our motivations. And we have a set of readings that we go through. One of my favorites is Ivan Illich's To Hell With Good Intentions, which is one gigantic bucket of ice water you pour on top of these young people who think they're going to save the world by living on $2 a day. And Ivan Illich comes in and says, hell, you know, stay in your own country, please. Come visit us, tours, but don't come here and try to walk around and solve anyone's problems. So it's an incredible speech. That's what is really abrupt and strong. And what now, to this point, like this spring, what the $2 challenge has evolved into is essentially is that we're trying to, it's a movement to push forward this alternative narrative about our role in the end of global poverty. So as you said in the beginning, for years we have been told that we're the generation that will end global poverty. And this sentiment has led to orphan tours, mission trips, buying a pair of Tom's shoes, buying red products, all that stuff. Most of that stuff's ineffective. And so, and most of that stuff led by these individuals, this sort of what I call the do-gooder industrial complex, pushed forward this narrative that we are the ones who are in poverty, that we are the heroes of the story of poverty's end. And like I said earlier, I was completely immersed and conditioned by this by this narrative, and it took me a long time to unwind it and realize that my role was actually on the sidelines as a sidekick, not as a hero in this whole thing. And so now the $2 challenge is all geared towards how do we push for an alternative narrative, a more accurate narrative about our role in the story of poverty's end. Um, and there's a number of organizations rising that are pushing forward a more nuanced sort of <laughs> Narrative, which is the idea that local leaders in local communities will be solving their own local problems. They're the ones in the best position to do it. So how can we support local leaders instead of like start your own nonprofit, jump into a community and end poverty for another community? And so the $2 challenge now is like for us, we see it as a battle of two narratives, the do-glitter industrial complex and the narrative that we're pushing forward, which we believe is our narrative is. Is more accurate. It's not correct, but it's definitely more accurate, I think. And it's one that safeguards, I think, dignity more. What you're describing there reminded me and drew parallels with a documentary called Cowspiracy, where the director or the founder of this type of movement wanted to end or reduce greenhouse emissions, so decided to abandon the car cycle and do all he could and try to save the environment. But he realized from looking at a new narrative that one way of doing it is to reduce emissions released by cows and to, you know, <laughs> yeah. farting yeah, yeah, yeah. cows. Yeah. Yeah. And also to try to reduce our dependency on beef because what's happening is that some of the rainforests are being knocked in order to make way for grassland or grazing land for cattle. So we're replacing a lot of these natural environments for a man-made flatland in order to accommodate milk and beef. Mm -hmm. So that that was his type of narrative and how he decided to look at it at things differently. So I can see the parallels of trying to not to end poverty, but to help support the leaders within the countries and the communities that can actually. And I think it's amazing what you're doing. Like there's currently a, a lecture with a colleague of mine called Eugene Power, and right now he's in South Africa building houses which he goes every year. So he builds and helps participate in the building of houses for poor. So a lot of Irish tradesmen, academics, whatever background, all meet up together. They raise money and they fly over to Johannesburg with all the materials then already there. And they build proper homes, you know. One little step has a huge impact on the lives of those individuals you're actually helping. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I th this is interesting. I think uh, 
a story I would like to tell is like we were in Honduras one time, and, and this is sort of linking back to your story about the houses as well. So there's a small community of called Monte that just um, they were forcibly moved from one location to another location close to the community in which we worked at. And so we had went walked over and just introduced ourselves and said these are our services, and you know. If you were, if you're interested, we can come back and talk a little more. And it's about 30 households. They're all makeshift shelters. Um, you know, extremely poor individuals. And while we're in the community, another van full of gringos. Well, we're called gringos in Honduras. Um, at least I am and other Americans. And this guy comes out and he's, you know, tall, white guy, glasses, shades, comes up. He's like, Hey, what are you doing here? In a very sort of defensive tone, sort of defensive tone. And so I was like, oh, and I was like, I realized that I was in my first do-gooder pissing contest. And so I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to explain, you know, our, our, my, our loans. I'm like, hey, no fees, you know, no penalties. And then right before I got to low interest rates, he sort of lost interest, started looking over the horizon, popped his hat up, pulled his shades down a little bit, turned back to me, looked me deep into the eyes and swept his hand across the community. He says, you know what, before we got here, I didn't think they're going to make it. And I'm like, okay. And then he took a sigh. He looked at me again. He's like, you know, we built that public restroom. We're building that meeting house and we're building that home. Without us, I don't think they would have survived. And the thing is that this community has been surviving for years on their own. And so the idea that anyone from the outside is saving them is ridiculous. But here's the thing. We were both doing the same thing in the sense that he had a video camera crew with photographers. We had, I didn't have a crew, but I had a student taking video and taking pictures. And what was going to happen is that we were both going to go back to the United States. We we're going to look at our videos, look at our pictures. We we're going to package the poverty of Monte. And we were going to sell that commodity to our respective communities to get to raise money for the work that we do. Now, we're... The $2 challenge things up with the do-gooder industrial complex is that what the do-gooder industrial complex likes to do is spin a narrative that this community is weak and they don't have the capacity or the agency or the power to save themselves. And only someone from the outside, the white savior, is going to provide the benefit or provide relief. We try to push for a different narrative, which is more like you know, difficult situations. They will survive without us, but maybe we can do a little bit. This one, the latter one's hard to sell. And so the idea is that, you know, so if I was like a mission trip virgin, you know, this idea is that he probably could have won my heart with his hero's narrative. And I probably would have believed it. But I'm not. I mean, I'm, I got some age in this game. And so I, would, I wasn't falling for it. But the thing is that we went back a year later. When we came back a year later, every member of that community had a new home with four walls, a robust door, a steel corrugated roof. And that group and him and his narrative were able to manage a substantial transfer of infrastructure, whereas me and my students were able to extend maybe a couple hundred dollars worth of loans. So the question is, which one is making the bigger impact? Well, obviously, the you know, it's... The homes. I mean, the tangible look of it. It's obviously the yeah. homes, yeah. And then, but the thing is, I think about what, what I struggle with is that if I was poor, would I really give a shit what a bunch of gringos were saying about me and my family back in the United States? So I'll never meet these people, but I get a new home out of it. I probably wouldn't. And so the question, what I struggle with is like, okay, this do good or industrial complex and the story of the hero's narrative 
is it okay if it ends up in that kind of transfer of wealth? We choose not to pursue it because we really believe in, in dignity and we don't want to steal anyone's dignity or give the impression that we don't want to erode anyone's agency. And the idea, and I think the one thing that concerns me immensely is that in my culture, we have normalized a certain set of behaviors that are really inappropriate. One of those behaviors is the idea that, well, any poor child of color, I can go up and get a picture with and put it on Facebook with me. That's really, it doesn't happen in my community. Like I don't go to local playgrounds and see a, a little um, kid from my neighborhood, run up, get a picture with him and post it on Facebook. That's sort of gross, right? It's sort of like, well, I should probably be in jail or something. But if it's a poor child of color in a developing country, there's plenty of people around us in the United States and other places who are taking lots of pictures with these kids and posting them on Tinder or posting them on Facebook. And that's a really odd behavior that we've normalized in our culture. And I feel like that if we normalize that behavior, you think about, you know, what are some of the behaviors that, so if I live in Monte and I have this group come in, on a regular basis, what are the long-term consequences of my long-term exposure to their story that I am weak without agency? Do I start to believe that? And what if my children who are sitting next to me see the white guy always coming in and providing the services? Do I start to believe that expertise and action and agency come from the outside? These are things that really, that really concern me. But once again, the same thing. So, go ahead. And uh, do students pick up on that as well? Do they feel and experience what you're actually feeling? Yeah, that's what we do. We talk about it all the time. That's sort of one of the things that's where my pedagogy comes back in is that mm -hmm. through all of these stories and all these moments, my students are with me and we talk about all these issues. Everything I'm talking about with you, I talk about with them. And so in some ways, it's almost like we're trying to, the long-term trajectory is how do I create a new breed of social entrepreneur mm -hmm. who's not immersed in this sort of like do good or industrial complex and this narrative because we have internalized a role that's unfair, which is that we're the heroes. And vice versa, the poor may have internalized a, set of, a role that just steals their agency, I think, can. It's a very difficult and a, such a great area, but I do totally get what you're saying. Have you met other people in your area that actually help out, be a financer or anything else, that are able to distinguish between a do-gooder and someone who's, who would be the opposite to a do-gooder? You? You are no, do, you, no. you are the do-gooder, but <laughs> yeah, I think I am the. Um, I think it's more of a, it's a bit of a oh geez, it's hard. I mean, because I'm not trying to say um, you know do nothing at all, mm. and I'm not trying to come across as sort of like this holier than now person because all these mistakes are the mistakes that I made. Yeah. Everything I'm talking about are things that I've done. And so my moment when I switched from sort of like a very traditional professional, professional trajectory of, of writing research papers for peer-reviewed journals to this place I am now happened in a orphanage in Honduras where I was visiting, feeding, and playing a bunch of malnourished kids who um, transformed my life. But at the same time, it sounds inspiring, but at the same time... Um, it's a sounds looking back, it's a bit disturbing that I was allowed to be in that orphanage. And that's sort of like, and how do I get out of that sort of, it's like, a, it's like this crazy sort of like, yeah, I mean, at the same time, it's, it was a moment that I cannot, it propelled me forward into a place that I believe I'm a better human being. At the same time, I shouldn't have been there. 
I mean, we don't allow strange men into orphanages in the United States. And so what is it? There's something unsavory about the idea of using poor people to transform myself. And I don't know how. I, I still am trying to figure out how to deal with that, that that's what happened. And how do I find a way to sort of like, and I look back on it and think about, you know, all the benefits, all the things that I've done in this space, most of the benefits have been captured by myself personally. And that's another thing I, that concerns me immensely. So I'm always trying to figure, I'm still, I haven't figured out the answer, but I'm always constantly thinking about what is my role in this thing, if any at all. You're very much a, a philosopher, I think, a deep thinker. <laughs> I don't think people may go as deep into it as you would, but I can see where you're coming from most definitely. And that's something that makes a person unique because they battle between their emotions to question the validity of the structures and the systems and that are put in place. As you mentioned, the tangible nature of giving and do, doing for others and also the images, video or pictures, still images that accompany all of this do-gooding. Mm -hmm. And you may ask, are some people in it for the wrong reason? What are people's motivations some people might do it as looking for the, oneself in terms of the need to find or repay, as in your case, correcting something that you've experienced in the past that you'd like to help people, yeah. help people with. And you said you teach development economics. You're making it so real for not only you and your students, because a lot of economic theory, we, as we know, has assumptions we don't get the smells. We're not in touch with a lot of the work that we read in peer review journals or in textbooks. How does that come to life for you? I know you've explained it, but how does that come to life for you in terms of illustrating these concepts and examples in the classroom? Well, yeah, I do have a Lesebo. I have a class I call Lesebo where my students actually okay. run the microfence operations. Um, and so that goes on year round. And so that's where... The way it is manifested is that in many ways, there's two parts. But one part is sort of like trying to unravel my students' assumptions about the poor, their economic lives, and their role in being of assistance. Because I am fighting like an entire culture that has conditioned us to believe in certain things. And so we spend a significant amount of time trying to sort of like question ourselves, our motivations, what our beliefs are, what our assumptions are. Um, and so that's how it manifests. That's like, that's lots of conversations and lots of conversations. But in my straight up development class, what I try to do is that I teach that development class, not in a traditional sense with solar growth models and things like that, but I take Doug's work and I've created a class around his work. And it's one of the, I mean, I love that class. And it is all straight up theory, straight up abstract, but it brings in history, politics, sociology, anthropology, and economics. And just straight up his model. <laughs> it just sort of puts all together so they can, and I want to, what I want them to leave the classroom with is like this weight of complexity. Like, holy shit, I don't know anything. <laughs> That's what I want them to walk away with yeah. so that they know that, but it's also the excitement I want them to walk with just how incredible this sort of analytical framework is, but also to know that they've seen one little glimpse of it and it is so complex mm. that, that I hope 
anchors them in a position of humility if they do decide to step forward and work with communities around the world or even in their own home, um, in their in their own country, to come in as a Cicero with a sense of just like doubt and hubris and just not hubris but humility, just being, okay, I'm here to listen, I'm here to learn. And if, if there's a gap where I can fill, where I can play a role, however small, then I can step in and, and stand side by side with you in solidarity. That's sort of what I'm going for. And if I were to address your earlier question, what I was looking for is that I needed to feel significant. So when I started this work, I was a flailing human being. <laughs> I felt hollow inside. And for some reason, I felt like I could fill that hole by trying to end someone else's poverty. So that's really how I ended up in Honduras. And, and I, you know, what, what's happened over time, however, is that I remember my first trip there, I was taking a picture of this woman carrying a bucket. She had, no, she's carrying a bundle of wood on her head. And so I took a picture of her and she was upset that I took a picture of her. Rightly so. So she told our driver, who is also our translator, she's like just feeding, she's yelling at him. He's brushing her off. I'm acting oblivious but I knew I was wrong for taking that picture. And I still feel shame right now just talking about it. And then when I returned the next year, I ran to her again and she just walks up as I'm walking across the community, puts her finger in my face and she starts yelling some Spanish in my face. I don't speak Spanish. Um, and so I turned to Megan and my students, I'm like, what's she saying? She's like, well, she told you, you need to learn Spanish. <laughs> and then, and then I saw her like a couple years later because I keep going down. I go down every year to Honduras and then we're in the learning center and we're, my students aren't given out a set of loans. So it's full of chaos and there's lots of clients. And my students are working one on one with them. I'm walking through. There's kids running and playing and soccer balls working out the wall. And I feel this tug on my arm and I look down and it's her. And she just looks at me and I just instinctively just gave her a little peck on the forehead because she, you know, Norma's like in her 65. She's like 70. And that was instinctive. Now was the beginning of us starting to understand each other. And then just like last year, my students were doing a business plan competition with our clients. It's outside, all these classes, and they're working together. And I'm just watching them. And, and Norma walks up, and she stands next to me, and she interlaces her fingers with mine, and we start swinging our hands back and forth. And it's, it's just, you know, nothing really significant, but it's also this very powerful moment where I'm like, I'm like holy shit, here it is. It's called common humanity. And I can feel the sense of common ground. And she, every, after a few minutes, she taps my hand, uh, lets her finger, she walks away. But it took me seven years to get to a place where I could sort of discard everything, you know, sort of get out, get around my human constructs about who I am, who she is, and find this place of, of common humanity where we could begin to... You know, we don't share a language, we don't share a history, we have, I have so much more power than her in a traditional sense. I'm a white heterosexual American male. I mean, does it get any more powerful than that? No. But in that moment, we were just two human beings. And I feel like that's what I try with my students to try to, how can I prepare them for a moment where they can have that as well, where they can try to be in a place where they can seek out this common ground with everybody else. Um, a lot of people, you know, Ivan Illich, I mentioned earlier, he would argue that there's no possibility for us to realize common ground. I don't agree with that part because I think it is possible, but you have to work hard at it. And I had to recognize that the reason I jumped into our community was because I wanted to feel significant seven years ago, and that was the wrong reason. It's like as if you came full circle. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. from, from your childhood all the way up and helping <laughs> yeah. out those people. But also, it just goes to prove that you're in the, I wouldn't say business, but you're in this for relationships. Yes. And relationships, once they're built up and the trust is built up, they're everlasting. They are. That image you just created that I have in my head is quite powerful and quite empowering as well for you and that lady. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, but, and I think, um, I think the one thing I, you know, I would want people to take away from that is that one, it took a lot of work on my part to sort of like abandon assumptions and, and reconsider my preconceived notions. But at the same time, I have to fight every single day to stay in that place because my savior complex wants to rear its head all the time. So it's like a constant battle to sort of say that kind of person <laughs> to yeah. make that thing happen. It, you know, it's it had to be ever vigilant, I feel like. I have lots to talk to you about. Could I just maybe ask you something about tribal teaching? Sure. Because yeah. I've read a couple of posts on your website, tribal teaching, and I think I've got a glimpse into the future. And you've nailed it, I think, in terms of identifying the five types of students. And we, I think, want to be one of those change animals that you've, or change making animals that you've outlined. And we don't want to be the passive student yeah. who just shows up and gives back exactly what we're expected to give back. We want some kind of life enrichment, something that you're offering your own students. I think this can be a movement. But where did you get your inspiration from, or is this more personal? I think uh, one, it is, I, it, it is the beginning of the movement. I'm trying to turn it into that. Um, and I'm still in the early stages of articulating every aspect of it, but it's actually, it's interesting. It comes from a few sources. So, you know, I left my PhD program and I was studying patterns of pre-state warfare. And I was doing a lot of work in anthropology, trying to understand how do pre-state societies engage in pitched battles. Um, the reason why is that there's a whole reason why, which I love, because Doug has this one quote that just, I ran an entire dissertation out of, which is, you know, states have a comparative advantage in violence across a geographic area. Then I'm like, where does this comparative advantage in violence come from? And so I wanted to go all the way back to the beginning and try to understand the process by which political authority emerged. And pre-state societies, you know, they don't have the political authority with which to sort of compel people to fight or die, you know, because you can just basically shoot them or put them in jail if they don't continue to fight. And so the question is, how do you get these groups of individuals to step into danger together? And there's all kinds of great stuff I learned about rituals and creating these small societies where people were, they were the warriors were separated from the rest of the population and all the sort of like crucibles they would go through to prepare them for this moment. And essentially, I've taken all that knowledge and I've created a classroom around it. And so the tribal part is like, okay, we are a tribe. I'm going to separate you from the general population. And we are going to have all these shared experiences. We're going to have these rituals. And there's going to be a crucible. And you have to go through it if you want to be one of us. In many ways, I also played football from the time I, American football, that is, from the time I was in fourth grade all the way through college. And so I captained my high school team and my college football team. And so I knew what it meant to create that sort of like common bond, that brotherhood and sisterhood. And so um, I take that and the, my research and I'm just designing this pedagogy around trying to create essentially 
in the essence in this in the pre-state warfare, it was all about commitment. If I commit to stand my ground, then the person next to me can also commit as well. They're more likely to. The reason why is that, you know, as upright animals, all of our fighting implements are in the front. Our teeth, our fingers, our nails, our feet, our backs and sides, however, are exposed. We're not turtles, we're not porcupines, and so the only way we protect our flanks and our rear is if we have people standing side by side with us, and they won't move. They commit to hold, they to hold the line. And that's what all those rituals are about. So what I do is I want to commit my students to do the work which is hard, which is I'm not telling them what to do. They go out, they find it, they do it, and they follow through. And that's really, really hard, I realize, for all of my students. And so what I try to do is design a, a setting in which we create this culture of commitment. And if they don't commit, they break the cultural rules. And whenever you break a culture, you if you internalize it, you feel guilt. You don't want to feel that. So you, you do it anyway. And if you break a uh, cultural commitment, you also there's also shame involved, which we don't call it shame because I don't I don't have, I don't believe in negative shame or negative peer pressure, but there is peer pressure, which is your standing in the tribe and the group will drop if you fail to follow through. Not that we're going to point out that hey you didn't do that and shame on you. That's not allowed. But we do say you didn't do it. What do you need from us to make sure you can? But if you're not going to work, then you'll see your ranking drop. Not that we keep like a death chart or anything like that at all. But it's just sort of a natural group, group setting. And what I'm looking for is that is that once people go through that crucible of having to commit and actually follow through in the project, it essentially transforms them because it gives them a glimpse into what their what their potential potential is as a human being. That they can anything they choose to do, they can do it if they fully commit themselves. And I think for us, it's not necessarily you know I, what I want to truly get at is. You know, definitely do great work that shows up in the universe, like where our work in Honduras or the Month of Microfinance or $2 Challenge, but also the working on their internal universe about what kind of person am I going to be and how can I commit myself to be that person? Because all of us, most of our hard, our hardest work is inside of us. You know, you doing your podcast and you continuing the blog, you know, dealing with all of our doubts and our fears and everything like that. I mean, that's the hard part of this work. And waking up every day and committing ourselves and find a way to sort of muscle through the fear and doubt that's always roiling around us. I mean, it's exhausting, but you got to grind it. And so that's sort of what I'm trying to teach them about. And you're developing a comparative advantage for these students now. Yeah. You know, with this, because they have, you could correct me if I'm wrong, they have a life-changing experience, be it external or internal where they've internalized it. So they kind of find out something about themselves as being part of a team or a tribe. Yeah. And how you have to work with commitments and struggles and get through certain barriers because I loved your no novel, If You Breed, You Must Battle. And I think <laughs> yes. it does, I, I, I recommend people, I'll put the link up on the show notes page to this, but it's a six, seven page images with a some text. And it just shows what I think what everybody's experiencing in terms of self-doubt yeah. and conforming and living in the comfort zone. Yeah. But to face those fears and battle your way through them. Yeah. I live in, I, I live in comic book land. I mean, I feel like that's where I, <laughs> I grew up reading Narnia. I'm a Star Trek fan. And I mean, I love all the superhero stuff because it's almost the same thing, which is that they're all what the superheroes are going through that's what we're going through as well. 
And they are yeah. a representation of humanity, <laughs> aren't they? They are. And there's this, you know, Joseph Campbell. I'm just spying upon this guy, Joseph Campbell, back in the 40s, wrote this book about a thousand faces. I can't get the title right now. But he basically went through all mythology and he found the same arc. And it would end up when you, that, what you're referring to with the images and the text, when I did that with a student like two years ago before I found Joseph Campbell. And I'm like, oh my God, his arc is in that arc. I see it, uh, the life chart, what is the arc of agency? You know, yeah. the arc of agency is what you're talking about. But it's, when I saw it, I totally res- it resonated with me. Sorry for interrupting. No, no, it's great. <laughs> it's wonderful. No, I, I agree. And it's, um, yeah, it's amazing. I, I get really, I mean, this, I eat this stuff up. I just, you know, I give, I call them halftime speeches. And it's where, like, I feel like that's what I was born to do, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad I came across you anyway, Sean, to be honest. And I hope somebody either listens to this or picks up on some of your speeches or the work that you've done and they do a documentary. Well, that would be sweet. <laughs> and there's so many documentaries you could do it. You know, you could have your two day challenge. And I know there's a new documentary called the Stanford prison experiment where they got students in the 1950s, I think and yeah. had prisons and you know, you could do something along those lines and also your tribal teaching, you know, that movement. I like it. Yeah. It just didn't go on. So we're, I got a few, a few more things. I got a lot more to do, but it's going to, we're going to push it out just like I did the $2 challenge and just keep chugging away every day. Can I ask Wait. you some quick fire questions, Sean? Sure. Definitely. Before we wrap it up, if you could time travel, where would you like to go and what economist would you like to speak to? God, I had this a while ago. Oh, you know, I wouldn't go back very far. I would hang out with Armin Alshin and Daryl and um, Harold Dimsets. I met those two at a conference uh, when I was young, when they were older. But I would love to go back in the day when they were, like, at the top of their game and hang out. Yeah, they have great work. Anyone who's listening, anything from Alshin and Dimsets, just fantastic. Fantastic. I mentioned a book by Douglas North that you actually followed, Institutions, Institutional Change, and Economic Performance. But what other book would you recommend to our listeners? Oh, so since you were, you know, since I'm dealing mostly, mostly with economists, uh, you know, Gary Miller's managerial, managerial Dilemmas. Gary was also on my dissertation committee, and he was in the political science department at WashU. But Managerial Dilemmas is a fantastic book dealing with the emergence of authority and how you um, – incredible commitment and things like that. So fantastic. Kim and Doug, what a great pair to have on my dissertation committee. Is there any internet resource you'd like to recommend? Internet resource. Oh. That helps you get things done. That helps me. Oh, I think in terms, so the, there's two books out. Uh, so one book. All right. So Stephen Pressfield, The War of Art. So Stephen Pressfield is an incredible, incredible author who, um, and the entire book is about how do we deal with what he calls our resistance, those things that sort of keep us from basically pursuing what our dreams are. And just a small little book. I have it on my nightstand. I go back to it on a regular basis. The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield, phenomenal. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. Do you have any advice you'd like to share? Oh, I would say, so if I'm, you know, 
I probably have some young PhD students out there listening to this. So I would probably say, take some time to sort of um, reflect upon the moments when you're most productive, when you feel like your best ideas, you have your best writing going, and go back and revisit those moments and think about what you're listening to in terms of music, where you're at, who's around you, and dissect those moments of all the influences and conditions because you want to, if that's when you're most powerful, your job is to make sure those conditions persist and you, you recreate them. At the same time, you want to, I would say, be very aware of who you hang out with and how you feel when you are around them. And be okay. And it is okay to cut them out of your life. <laughs> and sometimes you have to do these things. It's not easy, but sometimes you have to get rid of some people who drag you down. That, yeah, that's great advice because some people will drag you down and you and a lot of people go out there to try and keep on pleasing them. Yes. Uh, you're wasting <laughs> your time. Sean, thanks so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share again with our listeners where they can find you. Uh, SeanHumphrey.com SeanHumphrey.com And that's Sean with a S-H-A-W-N Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can no, I had a great... I had a great time, Frank. It was wonderful. And I hope that we stay connected because yes. we're on the same path. And so I think we can learn from each other. Yes, definitely. You can find all the links to Sean on economicrockstar.com forward slash Sean Humphrey. Sean, thank you for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rock star. Thank you. <laughs>